I had a, a coach at the time and he pushed me to hire that first employee much sooner than I would have otherwise. Uh, I was meeting with him regularly and and he once I started explaining that we were getting some traction and, and you know, we had some clients and I was getting busy, he's like, yeah, you really need to look at hiring, you know, an assistant or, or someone to help you. And I was very skeptical at first. I was like, you know, what do you mean? I don't know if we can afford that. Like, but he was very insistent. And uh, I think that was a really great move or a really great piece of advice from him. And I, I try and pass that along to other young entrepreneurs who are just starting out. I'm like, if you're getting traction and you're starting to get busy, you need to hire someone before you think you're ready. Uh, Cause that's going to free you up to focus on higher value tasks. That's going to make the business grow that much faster. Hello everyone. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Today's episode of The Fort is brought to you by none other than Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of acquiring more than $587 million in assets throughout the great state of Texas. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial properties between $10 and $75 million throughout the major metro cities in Texas. In fact, Fort Capital was named the fastest growing real estate company in Texas by Inc. Magazine last year. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit fortcapitallp.com. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been excited about this one. Thanks. I'm uh, excited to be here, Chris. Yep. For everybody listening, Peter and I became friends online uh, through Twitter and have really kind of stayed in touch the last couple of years. And I admire what he's uh, building up in Columbus, Ohio. And so we'll kind of kick it off with that. Peter, what uh, brings a man to own a property management business in Columbus, Ohio? Great question. <laughs> I find myself still asking that question <laughs> from time to time. Um, I guess the short story is my background is in engineering. Uh, my business partner and I both have uh, degrees in engineering. Mine, mine's in electrical and his is in civil. And uh, he and I are friends from from childhood. We actually came up through Boy Scouts together. We both became Eagle Scouts, stayed in touch. And then out of college, um, he was already here in Columbus. I moved out to Columbus and we started buying real estate together. So we bought a few single family rentals. We liked that pretty well and really felt that we wanted to own our own business and kind of carve our own path rather than working for other people. And we saw property management as an opportunity to do that. So we got licensed and opened up RL Property Management here in 2013. Um, primarily, as actually at the time, we were thinking this will both be an exit from our day job and it will free up our time to be able to focus on buying more real estate. As it turned out, the market started to get really hot here in Columbus and we weren't able to buy as much real estate as we had hoped. Um, but the flip side of that is the property management business really took off. And so we, we kind of pivoted and decided to focus on the property management business. Uh, and so that's what, that's what we've been doing. 
Did you start it or did you buy it? We started it from scratch. So okay. it was it was literally uh, I I took the leap first. Um, we're 50-50 owners. I quit my engineering job in it was like April of 2013 and just got started. We had no units, no clients. We had nothing. Um, my business partner kind of paid me like a little stipend to help uh, pay the bills while we got the business going. And then he was able to come on board about a year later. So I have to ask, when you thought that the market was getting hot and now we sit in 2021, <laughs> was it really as hot as you maybe perceived at the time? Well, in retrospect, no, of course. Um, it, it's gotten hotter and hotter and hotter ever since. Um, we should have bought as much as we could in 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, but on the other hand, there's no guarantee it would have turned out that way. Um, hindsight is 2020 and um, it could have just as easily gone the other way, in my opinion. So, All right. Well, let's maybe just spend a little bit on kind of you leave your job and you have zero clients and zero units. What was kind of maybe describe the pathway to even kind of like break even or profitability? How, how did you really get the business going? Yeah. So let me think back. So yeah, we had no clients, no units. Um, and I spent a lot of time, of course, working on trying to get those first few clients. And so we got, you know, we got a website up and running. Um, we started doing some Google AdWords. I tried to get out and network as much as I could at the various real estate investor meetup groups. We even ran uh, a meetup.com group for quite a while. Um, and I spent a lot of time on bigger pockets as well. I remember that. And uh, it just kind of happened slowly at first. We got our first client and then another one and then another one. Um, and some of those clients were investors who had multiple units. So that, you know, that was helpful. And eventually got to the point where we were able to, to share an office with another real estate company. Um, and then just kind of went from there. It was, it was organic growth primarily in the beginning. Um, it was a lot of just, you know, I was meeting individually, individually with every property owner who was interested. Our fees were low. We would manage anywhere, any type of property. We had no like, we, we weren't like excluding any areas the way we do now. Um, so it was, it was just a lot of, uh, a lot of hard work in the beginning. There wasn't a lot of structure. I, you know, for a while we didn't have any employees. Um, but there was a demand for it. And we, we knew that going into it cause we had, we had kind of tested the waters and, and talked to other investors. And we knew that, you know, there was a lot of investors in Columbus who didn't like their property manager, felt they weren't looking out for their interests felt they weren't doing a good job with the details. And uh, so, you know, I, I, a mentor told me one time, sell into a hungry market. Uh, and so that's what we tried to do. We saw there was a need for for quality property management in Columbus, and, and we try to offer that. This has been brought up a couple of times before we go kind of further on that story. Uh, what did you said? I spent some time on bigger pockets. What, what do you mean by that? What did it have to offer to you and what was kind of the value you got from it? Yeah. So I'm referring to the forums there. So bigger pockets, if you haven't, you know, checked into it, they have a massive real estate forum. I think it's probably the biggest in the world. And so I set up key, like keyword searches. That's like a really powerful tool they have on bigger pockets. So I set up keyword searches for like Columbus, Central Ohio, Franklin County. And so anytime a forum post would mention one of those, I would get an email. So then it would jump into that thread and I would try to add value, right? I would try to, if someone had a question about what neighborhoods are good or 
how to handle water billing or even a question about property management, I would, you know, jump in and try and help them out. Um, and then of course, you know, I would try and mention like, and it says right in your profile, like Peter Loman, Columbus, Ohio property manager, and that appears next to any of your posts. So we, we definitely got some business from that. Um, and we continue actually, I, even though I haven't posted in years, I'll still get emails randomly. Hey, I saw yourself in bigger pockets. I really like it. You know, are you guys still managing property? Interesting. Okay. All right. So what was your first hire? So the first hire was an administrative assistant. Uh, it was a guy named Greg. Uh, he was fantastic. He was a referral from uh, a friend of ours <clears throat> who knew that he was he was um, an intern at another real estate company locally, and he was looking for a full-time position. So he came in, and he kind of did a little bit of everything. Um, he did a lot of the, the showings at the vacant units. He did He helped me with like paperwork, receiving and processing rent, uh, lease renewals, and things like that. Um, I remember... I had a, a coach at the time and he pushed me to hire that first employee much sooner than I would have otherwise. Uh, I was meeting with him regularly and, and he, once I started explaining that we were getting some traction and, and, you know, we had some clients and I was getting busy. He's like, yeah, you really need to look at hiring, you know, an assistant or, or someone to help you. And I was very skeptical at first. I was like, you know, what do you mean? I don't know if we can afford that. Like, but he was very insistent. And, uh, I think that was a really great move or a really great, um, piece of advice from him. And I, I try and pass that along to other young entrepreneurs who are just starting out. I'm like, if you're getting traction and you're starting to get busy, you need to hire someone before you think you're ready. Uh, cause that's going to free you up to focus on higher value tasks. That's going to make the business grow that much faster. I couldn't agree more. I've, in other, you know, if I've been on a podcast or spoken, I say the exact same thing that that first yeah. hire is the hardest, but in retrospect, it's the highest value thing you can probably do to go from, you know, zero to one, one to two. Um, so yep. thank you for sharing that. Describe where you stand today. So you started in 2013. Now give me a picture of what your business looks like today. And then I want to dive into your revenue model. Sure. So just for listeners who aren't familiar, I'm here in Columbus, Ohio. We manage residential rental properties, single family rentals, and small multifamily. And by small multifamily, I mean, we'll manage anything under 100 units. And we manage, as of today, 580 units total. And those are all scattered around central Ohio, around the Columbus area. And we manage B-class properties. That's our bread and butter. Our average rents are 1150. So if you're familiar with rents kind of in the Midwest, that probably paints a picture. Um, and we manage in like the nicer parts of town. We won't take on lower income or, or kind of like some of the more dangerous neighborhoods. We used to when we started, as I mentioned, but we don't any longer. Um, the team, and I, I should clarify, we focus exclusively on property management. We don't do brokerage. We don't do any type of sales activity. Uh, all we do is manage properties. And the team here is, I think it's about 17 or 18 people, uh, full-time employees as of today. And we have a maintenance department too. I have a feeling we'll probably end up talking about that. But of those 18 people, seven of them are full-time maintenance techs, W-2 employees. And we have a few um, kind of like managers in there as well. Okay. We will be talking about maintenance because that is such a critical part of this business. Um all right. Well, let's just start with the revenue model. So from my perspective, you know, you, you, you look around a lot and often it's, 
uh, you know, it's a percentage of revenue or it's a, how many units you have, but you kind of have this flat fee model and you offer kind of three flavors of it. Uh, call it basic, medium, and you know, super. I, I can't remember. I, I'm not on the website. Yeah. You can say it better. Can you kind of describe how you arrived at this and and what each kind of st- um, layer of the revenue mean to you? Sure. So we have three. I guess there's probably two things to talk about here. One is that our the way we set up our pricing is different from most other property managers. We charge a flat fee instead of a percentage, and I'll talk about why. And then the other thing to talk about here is we have three levels of service. We call them bronze, silver, and gold. And so property owners, you know, the the folks who hire us to manage their properties, they can choose from those three different plans. And on top of all that, we have discounts for volume. So the more units we have under management with you, the cheaper it gets on the monthly management fee. So back to the flat fee versus percentage. So most property management companies going back years and years and years, charge a percentage of collected rents. That's kind of the default. And a lot of them float around for scattered site property management, uh, meaning single family and small multifamily rentals kind of spread out over a city. Most property managers are going to charge around 10%. Some of them could do 8 or 9%. A little bit depends on like the average rents in that area. And we actually started out with that model, um, but we pretty quickly pivoted to a flat rate. So in our pricing is right on our website. You can check it out. We charge about $100 a month per unit as a flat rate management fee. And the reason for that is this percentage-based thing is really messed up because it turns out that the lower the rent is, the harder the property is to manage, and you're making less money. So why would you do that? And then kind of on the flip side, the higher-end, nicer properties, the rents are higher, And so then the management fee is higher, which is, of course, great if you're the management company, but it tends to scare away clients who have those nicer, higher-end units because the numbers don't work for them. So what we did is we looked at our costs. We figured out, you know, what does it actually cost for us to manage one individual unit? And we set our fee equal to that cost plus a profit margin. And so that has kind of a natural filtering effect where anyone who has a lower-end unit is going to self-select out because for them, and we get calls like, your fee is like a 20% management fee. And I'm like, sorry, like, I mean, that's what it costs to manage a unit. Just because it's a lower rent doesn't mean it's easier for me to manage. It's actually the opposite. So that's been our model. Um, We're not the first ones to do that. um, And there's other companies doing it. It works well for us. um, And I think it's, I think it's the way to go because it, it, it makes the revenue predictable and it helps real estate investors understand going in what their property management cost is going to be sort of independent of the rents. So then we have the, the brown, silver, and gold. Um, and those, uh, they for the higher-end plans, they allow the property owner to be a little bit more involved in some of the decisions. Um, so like on the gold plan, for example, we give the property owner final tenant approval. So they have the final say once, once, once we have a prospective tenant who's gone through our process and we think they're ready to, we're ready to extend an offer to sign a lease, we'll call the owner and, and give them the opportunity to, to give the final approval. So there's a few things like that with the, with the different plan levels that we've parsed out and, and that's how we make different price points available to property owners and investors. 
That's interesting to me. I would have figured that for the lower cost, you would have given them approval. And for the higher cost, it would have been like, hey, you can go on a beach for a year and we'll, you'll never hear from us again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it turns out that the more involved a property owner it is, the harder it is for us because it's more, it's just more effort for us to reach out and communicate with a property owner on a decision. Uh, and so we charge more for that. And property owners also place a value on that. They're willing to pay a little bit more for input in, in around certain decisions. Like uh, one of the other items that that varies per plan is the maintenance approval limit. So kind of our default plan is the middle one, which is silver. The maintenance approval limit is $500. So anything over $500, we're going to call the owner first and get approval. Um, for property owners who do want to be hands-off, and we love those types of property owners, it works out fantastically for them because it's the cheapest plan and they can be completely uninvolved and they're happy. We're happy. It's a beautiful moment. Uh, we actually are, are, most of our client problems are, are around property owners who want to be more involved than our model is really set up for. So, okay. So you, you, can you describe just a little bit more what goes into that flat fee and then we'll start talking about maintenance. Are there other revenue line items that you that you would charge, you know, irrespective of what that flat fee already has, maintenance, maybe any other things like that? Sure. Yeah. So the flat fee, we try to include as much as we can in that monthly management fee. Um, it includes leasing, actually. So we don't charge a separate leasing fee, which is kind of our other claim to fame. Um, it includes, of course, rent collection. It includes dealing with the day-to-day -day of tenant calls in and has a question about their lease. Um, it, it really covers like just the day-to-day -day management of the property. There are certain other fees that property owners pay. We have a lease renewal fee. Um, and for special or really unusual scenarios, like let's say there was like a fire at a property and we had to handle an insurance claim, there'd be a fee for that because it's kind of over and above what's included in the scope of service for property management. Um, as it turns out, that monthly management fee only makes up about one third of our overall revenue. So if you look at the overall revenue for the company, the monthly management fees make up about a third. Uh, maintenance makes up about a third or actually a little bit more. It's probably closer to 40%. I can talk about our maintenance department and, and the revenue that they pull in and how that works. And then the last one third or a little bit less than one third comes from other fees. So this is going to be like those like the lease renewal fees I talked about, it comes from late fees that we collect from tenants. It comes from we charge a tenant benefit package. It's I think it's uh, $17 a month that we charge tenants. Um, and we keep that fee and it provides them with a renter's insurance policy. We have a master policy and it provides them with a few other benefits like their online portal and after hours maintenance and a few other things. So there's a few other kind of ancillary fees that go into sort of a miscellaneous category. Um, so those three those are like kind of our three main revenue streams. So if somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, you know, we're totally uh, down with your fees, but you kind of go and walk the property and it's a real dump. It needs just a ton of work. Does that client usually expect you all to go in and get it rent ready? Or are you expecting the client to do the work and then come back to you? Great question. Um, it depends a little bit on the details and how extensive the work needed is. Our company isn't really set up to do like major remodels. 
or like a down to the studs renovation. Um, for that, we would recommend to the owner, hey, why don't you go ahead and hire a general contractor, call us when it's done. We'll be happy to manage it from there. Our company, of course, handles the turnovers. So when a tenant moves out, there's a bunch of punch out items, maybe some some flooring, some paint. We can do all that. We can even do basic bathrooms and and kitchen remodels. But for a, a major, major work needed, we're not really set up for that, at least not yet. So we do recommend clients, you know, engage with another firm for those types of things. Right. All right. Let's talk about maintenance for a little bit. I think when, you know, if a lot of people think about property management, they think about collecting the rent and fixing the problems. And it's the fixing of the problems that separate. I, I'm not, let me take a step back. I'm not here to declare what it is, but from what I understand, <laughs> the folks that are most, the best people in this business can get to the property quick and fix problems. Um, you have 580 something units. At any one point in time, how much maintenance do you have going on? And kind of how does the day start for your maintenance techs? Sure. So we've got those seven full-time techs and they and we have enough work to keep all seven of them busy for 40 hours a week, no problem. Like there's never an issue, except maybe like one or two weeks in the dead of winter with keeping them busy just from the day-to-day um, maintenance requests from occupied units. So we're, uh, we're processing, I would say, 20 to 30 maintenance requests from occupied units per day. And then we also have the turnovers. So every time a tenant moves out, there's a whole process to get that unit turned over. And our guys take, take on a lot of that work. We're doing anywhere from, I would say, I would say we're probably doing like 200 turns a year, something like that. Um, so the maintenance, uh, team, those seven guys, they operate very autonomously. Um, and that's by design. We, we bring in guys who have skills and experience with handyman type activities. A lot of these guys have actually worked for themselves in the past and are just, they don't, they prefer to just do the work. They don't like, like dealing with customers and the billing and all that. So they're a perfect fit for us. Um, so our guys set their own schedule. They get handed work orders or they come electronically and they'll call and schedule with tenants or they'll go directly to the property and begin work on a turn. Um, they have credit cards, so they just go and buy whatever materials they need to do that job. And then they turn in the work order and the work order will notate, you know, how many hours it took. They attach all the receipts and then that gets processed and billed to the property owners. And so, and you kind of said these are general handymen. So are any of these just like plumbing specific or electric specific, or they're kind of jack of all trades can kind of make their way around the unit and kind of do everything? Yeah, they're, they're closer to jack of all trades. Um, we have some guys with good electrical experience. Uh, we have some guys with some plumbing experience, but we don't have like a licensed electrician or a licensed plumber. Um, that's something we've looked at doing. We don't, we're probably getting close, but last time I checked, we didn't quite have enough volume to like keep a plumber busy full time. For example, I think we would need some more units to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, they, they're, they can do like basic electrical, basic plumbing, but they're, they're generally doing like handyman type activities. Yep. And just to take a step further, everybody's talking about labor, especially blue collar labor right now, tough to find. Yeah. Uh, can you just maybe speak to what you're seeing right now, um, kind of in that world and kind of how you're thinking about it going forward? Yeah, it is tight. And here in Columbus, skilled, skilled trade labor has been in short supply for years and years. We've actually felt it because we've had a lot of construction here. Uh, so 
we've, you know, obviously had to figure out how do you hire these guys and how do you retain them more importantly? So I have some pretty strong feelings on this. Um, First, you need to pay them well, right? You can't, you're not going to be, you're not going to hire and keep around good guys unless you're paying them well. Um, So, you know, I think sometimes clients get the idea that we have access to some sort of like incredibly cheap labor and we really don't. I mean, we're competing in the marketplace just like any other employer um, for this type of work. So you need to pay them well. Um, A big component of, I think, what has contributed to our low turnover has been we really treat these guys as equals with everyone else at the company. So I think in a lot of property management real estate companies, the maintenance team or the maintenance techs get treated as kind of second class citizens. Like they're kind of like hanging out in the maintenance shed and they might be on a different compensation and benefits plan. They might all be contractors. Um, they're sort of left out of a lot of a lot of the, um, you know, like the fun office stuff that happens, like the parties or we're, we're all going out for drinks or, you know, maybe even like the the all hands company meetings and things like that. Our guys are treated as 100 percent equal in every way with the office team members. Um, what's funny about how these guys get treated at a lot of other companies is. I know for a fact that they're making more than the average, you know, office employees. So for them to be treated, you know, with less respect or something, I just never understood that. So um, we try to we try to demonstrate that and and set that example in the office. Um, you know, we provide benefits, so we have health insurance. We offer a retirement account matching, so that really helps both with um, you know attracting good talent and then retaining it. Um, and we, like I said, we provide a lot of autonomy. So again most maintenance guys are used to kind of being treated poorly almost from day one. It's like kind of the default attitude. If you talk to a lot of landlords is like, you can't trust these maintenance guys. You know, they've got GPS tracking on their vehicles. They're, they're wanting to know where they are every second of the day. And we take the total opposite approach. We have a trust by default model. We don't have GPS trackers. You know, these guys are recording their own times, recording their own mileage. Um, And we, of course, we are doing some basic checks to make sure that no one's being dishonest, but it starts from the position of we trust you. We believe that you're competent. Whatever you need to get your job done, let us know. We're going to get it for you. We're going to pay for like any specialty tools that you need. Uh, and I think all those things together goes a long way toward really um, attracting, retaining quality people that you would be comfortable with having come and do work in your home, right? I mean, these guys do work in my house around my kid. Uh, you want the type of person that you're not going to worry about them being around a tenant or even a client. What a great answer, man. Kudos <laughs> to you. That's awesome. Thanks. It's amazing what treating people like people will do for a, a company. It, I've never, yeah. I'm 100% on your side. It floors me constantly to hear these stories of uh it would seem so obvious to someone like you or maybe me that treating people with respect and dignity goes a long way. Um, and in the world we're living in today, it's table stakes. I think you could have gotten away with a lot more of it, you know, 50 years ago, but it, it certainly yeah. doesn't exist today. Um, great. That was just awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, the, the kind of uh, thing that you know, some people think about when they think about maintenance was it the tenant that did it or the landlord that did it, or is it the landlord's issue or the tenant's issue? Yeah. 
How do you guys kind of mitigate that to where it's very black and white and not gray? Yep. And that's really common, right? A tenant calls in, oh, you know, my furnace broke or the, you know, the, the bedroom doorknob fell off or there's a clog in my kitchen sink. So how do you decide, hey, is this actually a landlord responsibility item or is this something the tenant should be dealing with on their own? So a few different things to think about here. One, our standard lease is extremely clear on these details because we've faced all the different scenarios that can come up. And over time, we've improved and clarified and streamlined our lease to make it as clear as it can possibly be. Uh, so if, if a tenant calls in, the first thing, and we have, an, we have a full-time person called Occupied Maintenance Coordinator, all they're doing is processing these maintenance requests day in and day out. So they've, they get very familiar with our standard lease and, and these types of common scenarios. So when a tenant calls in, they're going to look at the lease. And if they're on our standard lease, we pretty much know what the answer is going to be. A lot of our properties are on inherited leases. So we say we take over management of a 10 unit property. Well, those tenants already have leases in place. So sometimes we have to do some research and look at the existing lease to figure out if it has anything to say about that specific maintenance issue. Um, and then, of course, over time, we roll over those tenants onto our standard lease. So ideally, it's clear. And if it turns out it's a tenant responsibility item, we just kind of gently put it back on them. We say, hey, you know, this is actually a tenant responsibility item. Um, here's some suggestions on how you can get that fixed. You know, maybe here's a link to a YouTube video on how to clear your garbage disposal or something. Um, or we could even occasionally provide a, like a referral to a plumber or something if they need to, you know, really get some help. Um, most of the issues are landlord issues. Uh, and so, you know, that's just handled per our standard process for processing a work order. So we'll assign that to either one of our internal guys or we'll hire a third party contractor or a vendor to make arrangements with the tenant to go out and, and fix the problem. Got it. We're going to get into a little bit kind of more of the operation in a second, but you recently had a post, I think it was like an owner that you had had, they left you and then they came back. Yeah. Can you maybe just go uh, and tell us why they left and why they came back? Yeah. So um, I'll speak broadly here for a second about the business. So the business of property management um, is nice because it's recurring revenue. And I've, you know, I post on my Twitter sometimes about like, it's so nice to have a recurring revenue business. There's like a snowball effect that builds up. Kind of the the dark secret of recurring revenue businesses is your churn rate. So anyone who has a recurring revenue business, you better know what your churn rate is, which is how many of your customers are leaving in a given time period. And we look at this on an annual basis. So if I started the year with 100 clients, meaning people who own rental properties that we manage, how many of those leave in a given year? Well, it turns out for our business, it runs around 15 to 20%. Uh, and that mostly has to do with the hot sales market here. So if we start the year with 100 clients, 15 to 20 of those, we're no longer going to be managing for them by the end of the year. Uh, and I would say 90% of those is due to a sale. So they just decide to sell a property for one reason or another, mostly because the values are so high right now. Occasionally, we do have someone leave for other reasons. And it could be because we terminated them. We felt like they just weren't a good fit for our management style or they were like, you know, there's the old thing about like 20% of your clients take up 80% of your time. You got to keep an eye on that. Um, but then 
vice versa can also happen. We have clients terminate us. They say, hey, you know what? This isn't working out. I want, I want you managing my property anymore. So the example you're describing here, that's what had happened. A few years ago, a client who we, we managed about eight uh, single family rentals for, they terminated us. They called and said, hey, you know, and, and, and specifically in this scenario, they were unhappy with maintenance costs. They felt like they were incurring too high or too frequent maintenance expenses. And despite us kind of taking great pains to explain in detail, well, actually, you know, here's what happened and here's what we did. And we felt this was reasonable. They just, it was like too many of them or something. And so they, they terminated and actually went to another property manager. So that's unfortunate, but does happen. And we always try to be super professional on, on the back end of that, right? So some property managers, because we deal with the other side of this, some property managers, when an owner terminates, they get really nasty, right? They get really nasty with the owner. They become unresponsive. They don't cooperate. You know, they make it difficult for the owner to get like their final accounting and the keys and the leases and everything else. We always try and be super professional. Like we don't speak badly about them. We make sure everything is really organized in a nice packet for them to come pick up to either self-manage or give to the new property manager or what have you. So anyway, that was a few years ago. And then just a few weeks ago, I got an email out of the blue from this same client saying, hey, um, we're interested in coming back and having you manage our properties again. We didn't have a great experience with this other property manager, even though they were able to reduce some of the costs, the communication just wasn't there. And we just don't feel comfortable with like the level of professionalism. We really appreciated how responsive you guys were, you know, would you be interested in, in taking back management? So I posted on Twitter cause that like made my whole week. It just feels so good because as an entrepreneur, when you lose a client like that, no matter how sort of in the right you feel, like there's still a part of you that's like, are we doing something wrong? Like this person took all this time to leave to take, you know, cause switching property management companies is a real pain. So this person who we had been managing for, for a few years, um, took all this trouble to research other property managers and switch property managers away from us, it kind of messes with your head a little bit. It's like, man, are we like, are we missing something? Are we doing something drastically wrong that this person would up and leave like that? So when you have someone who then decides to come back, it really it vindicates like, okay, no, we were doing it right. We're on the right track. You know, we, we have the right solution for real estate investors. We just need to keep on the path and not, you know, worry about the one in a hundred clients who's who's just going to be unhappy no matter what. I love it. Uh, did you play hard to get it all or did you just let him right back in? <laughs> so actually, the, <laughs> the update to this story is um, we had a great call. And after the call, it turned out they sent me an email. It turns out they're going to sell their whole portfolio like in February or like early next year. And I, I, I was just told him, I was like, hey, to be honest with you, we don't have much interest in like going through all the work to take on these eight units again, if you're just going to sell them anyway. So we didn't end up taking back management, but um, I think the, the, the lesson still stands. Uh, it just, you know, turned out that way. For sure. Yeah. The more mature your business gets, the more you, you know, you lose, you know, again, it's one in a hundred and not getting psyched out. It kind of reminds me of the Herb Keller Southwest story of the lady that kept writing yeah. in and finally sent one last letter that, you know, I hate Southwest or whatever it was. And he just said, we'll miss you. We'll, um, we'll miss you. Yep. That's a great story. It's great. Um, uh, 
All right. I, I want to start getting back to just a little bit of the mechanics of the business, because I've been really impressed about how you've thought about it and automated. And you, I mean, you've taken a, a really great approach to this business. So, um, you know, to start, um, can you just talk about what you're doing right now with automation and kind of some technology? And I know, I think you had kind of said, like, you're starting to document everything kind of religiously. So let's just kind of go down that rabbit hole and start with um, what are you doing to kind of make this business more efficient and what's working and is there, is there a software behind it or is it a people thing? Yeah, great, great question. So I like to describe property management as tasks at scale. I mean, it's 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 literally that's what the business is. It's tasks at scale. It's a bunch of little things that have to all be done. They have to be done correctly and they have to be done in the right order. And if you can make that work, you're going to be successful. If you can't keep track of all those little details and all those little tasks, you're going to be v overwhelmed very quickly. So I spend a lot of time as the owner of the business thinking about how can we make sure that all these details and all these tasks are being done as efficiently as we can possibly do it? Because if I just have to keep hiring people, to keep up with the volume of tasks, we're not going to be able to deliver property management at a price that makes sense for our customers. So this kind of expresses itself in a few different ways. Um, software is a huge part of that, right? So we use Buildium, which is a, a property management software. It's similar to Appfolio, if, if you've heard of Appfolio. Um, and it's, you know, it's a lot of these property management softwares are similar. You know, they, they have a web-based interface. They have a great accounting function. They let you keep track of the tenants and the leases and the management agreements and a lot of the other things. Uh, but we're finding at scale, it's not enough to just have a good property management software because there's so much else that goes into the business, specifically around what I think a lot of people are now calling workflow automation. Um, property management software, I would describe it as, account, as accounting centric. So it's really, really good at keeping track of dollars and cents. and helping you run your business efficiently is kind of an afterthought or a bolt-on to that core product. Uh, so we supplement our property, our property management software with other software to help make our operations and processes more efficient. So we use Airtable to store data about all the properties and the units and the clients that we manage that doesn't have a good place within Buildium. We use Process Street for common checklists. So we have a lease signing checklist, a new client checklist, a new employee checklist, and, and a bunch of others. And any type of a common repeated activity like that, that's made up of a bunch of other sort of subtasks. I like to see those on a checklist. And that checklist can include things like links, pictures, instructions, videos on how to do it. And the beauty of that is you can take someone who's never done that before assign them to a new client checklist, and they can literally just follow the instructions that are right next to each item that they have to do and check it off as they go. So that's been really powerful. And you can start to link some of these things together. And we have with some of these no code or low code tools like Zapier. So we use Zapier or Zapier um, to connect certain functions with an Airtable to Process Street, for example. Or uh, we use a, a CRM called Lead Simple to help keep track of our, our prospective clients. And 
another thing we use Zapier for is once we mark a client as one within uh, Lead Simple, it will automatically s- create a checklist within Process Street for that new client. It'll start a new client checklist. So little things like that, um, some of them small, some of them big, start to add up. And they allow you to get more done with less man hours. Uh, and they also reduce mistakes. So I'm always looking for more ways to do that. Um, and I think I've been posting a lot and been getting a lot of interest more recently on, uh, we use Notion as like a company wiki. So for years and years, we had all of our sort of company information and processes and procedures, reference documents, forms, checklists, all that was just in Dropbox. So we had like a shared Dropbox across our whole company. Um, but what I was finding is there got to be so many files and folders and subfolders that literally no one knew what was in there, like not even me. I would like forget about a, like a document I had created years ago and I would recreate it. So by bringing all that into Notion, it makes it visible, it makes it really easy to update, and it allows you to, to share that information with team members in a way that's much more, uh, it's just it just makes sense. Like it's easy to see everything on the page. It's organized by like, here's the company policies, here's the work instructions, here's like what you need to know when you're talking to tenants. Um, and it's really saving the team a lot of time from either reinventing the wheel or having to dig through like 50 nested subfolders in Dropbox to find like our sublease form or, you know, some random document like that. What's the difference between Airtable and Notion? Um, in some ways, they're similar because they both have really powerful database functions. I describe Airtable as like, it's got the ease of use of Excel, but it's got a, it's actually a database on the back end, which unlocks a lot of really like powerful tools. Um, Notion is more, it's like a, I mean, we use it as a company wiki, uh, but it has a really powerful database function built into it as well if you wanted to use that. And we use it, we use that a little bit. Got it. And then as far as what goes into the company wiki, is that you and your partner that are kind of doing that? Or do you encourage your team to keep adding to it? And then kind of how do you keep the company wiki from being this bloated thing that, you know, makes it distracting? So my partner actually is no longer active in this business. And we can talk about that. He and I purchased a small engineering company this year and he's off running that company. So notion was an initiative we started this year. I took it on and I started populating it from day one. Um, and I quickly involved the team and I would encourage anyone to do this as well. Get your team involved, get them excited. You want to get some buy-in from them because you want them to use it. But you also, you need them to be updating it too. Because I can't, I can't maintain like every document in the company. It just doesn't make sense. So you get your team involved and we, you, you try to instill a culture of updating it in real time. So for example, we have like a credit card policy. So certain employees have credit cards and they can use those to purchase things they need for work. And, we, and there's like a procedure they have to follow of like how to file the receipt and, and everything like that. So we have a document in Notion called credit card procedure. So what you really want is people to be referencing that frequently, and then you want them to be updating it. So if there's a change to how we're handling our credit card receipts, you want whoever makes that change or whoever notices it to go in and just update it. Like, don't ask me, 
Don't wait until the end of the week. Just do it now, right? And then that's that's really going to instill that culture of we document everything, we keep our processes and procedures up to date, um, and this really becomes a living, breathing uh, reference for everyone at the company to make their jobs easier. It's not this like antiquated, archaic, three-inch dusty binder that we pull out once a year when there's a new employee. Um, that's like the exact opposite of what you want it to be used for. Does Notion allow you to like, um, let's just say I was a new employee and I went into your wiki to try and follow some process and maybe it like wasn't working or something. Am I allowed to like post feedback or say like, this is a one star process. It needs to be a, like, how does that yeah. work? Yeah, there's a, there's a, of course there's different permission levels. So you can, if you have a brand new employee, you might want to give them like read only access for the first few weeks. And they, there is the ability to leave comments. So you can like select an area, leave a comment. And you can tag people so that it would, you know, it would be brought to someone's attention. Yeah. Got it. Somebody asked on Twitter, um, is it worth having five units or is it worth having a hundred? Like, is it worth having one unit or should you have five or a hundred? Uh, I'm reading the kind of question. I think the, for an owner, what's worse? A hundred or what? I'm trying. How do, I, how do I ask this? I think you know what I'm asking. Is it one unit or is it a hundred or is it five? Yeah. So. It sounds like maybe the question is like, is it better to own five single family rentals or one five unit building? From our perspective, we would rather manage the five unit building and we would probably recommend to the property owner that that would work out better for them also. There's some efficiencies of scale that come with multifamily. Uh, you know, you've got one roof, you got one sewer connection, you got one water connection, you got one trash can you got to deal with. You got, you know, one power bill, you know, so there's some efficiencies at scale, uh, you know, plus when our maintenance guy goes there, he can maybe knock out a few different low priority items at the same time. So I, you know, we like multifamily, a lot of, a lot of my peers in the property management world actually will not take on, will not take on management of small multifamily properties for whatever reason. I'm not even really sure why, but we've always really liked it. Um, and we, and we, you know, actually select for property owners that own multifamily. We seek them out. We're happy to manage single family rentals and we do a ton of those, but we also really like multifamily. And I asked that uh, kind of leading back to what we were talking about before, if, I, if I'm going now through kind of how we do things, is it different? Like, uh, is it really radically different that, from your perspective on how you manage a client with call it one or two units versus a client that has a hundred? Or is it just like you said, it's just tasks at scale. It's the same thing. We're just doing it a lot more for one client than we are for the other. It's really, really similar. There's very few differences on our end as to how we manage a multifamily versus a single family. Now, once you get up toward like 50, 60, 80 unit multifamily, there are some other things that come into play because there's probably going to be like a parking area that has to be maintained. There might be common hallways. Um, and from a customer service perspective, you're going to want to give that property owner a lot more attention. So anyone who has, I think, starting around 10 units or more, um, we give them extra attention. So they get monthly updates from us. Uh, in addition, of course, everyone gets their monthly statement, but we give them like a monthly sort of handwritten email, like, here's what you want to know about what's going on with your portfolio. You have these move outs coming up. You have these vacancies and this is the status. We just leased this unit. Here's the rent. Like 
someone actually takes some time and thinks through what would someone want to know about their investment property or properties besides just getting the financial statement. Um, and we have a few other things that we do for those larger multifamily clients as well. But the day-to-day tasks, extremely, extremely similar. They're all just units with people living in them. They have a lease. They have a front door. They have a plumbing system. They have an HVAC system. They have a renewal that has to be watched after. There's accounting involved. It's all you know, pretty much the same stuff. Yep. Okay. Um, one more question kind of on software. You've been in this business now eight years. You just kind of mentioned a series of three or four things you you use. From your seat today, and maybe the answer is no, but is there anything that immediately comes to mind that's like, this should be built for our industry and it would you know save me a lot of headaches? Is there something like obvious? So I, I do think so. Um, I described earlier how property management software... So let me give a brief history of how I view this industry. So in the old days, right, the old days, um, you had pen and paper ledgers, right? You literally have a file folder that you would pull out if a tenant came in the office to pay their rent. You would mark, you know, receive rent this day, initials of who it was or whatever. It was literally, it was paper. Um, And then you had the first generation of property management software, which was desktop based, right? It was probably like Windows 3.1, you would pay $500 and, and get some piece of software that you would get on floppy disks or a CD. You would install it on that specific computer and you would use that to help keep your accounts, right? The equivalent of like QuickBooks desktop, but designed for rentals or property managers. So that's like what I think of as the first generation. Um, and then you have what I think of as like the next generation, which is web-based software. So instead of being a desktop program that you download, you take that similar type of functionality and you move it to a web-based product. And that's what we have with building a Manatfolio. But what's important here is that software is all at its heart. It's accounting centric. It's charges and credits and ledgers and debits and you know all those accounting terms because that's it came out of a digital version of a printed ledger. And as I kind of referred to earlier, I think what we really need now is a third generation property management product or software that's workflow centric or process centric. And obviously, yes, it needs to have good accounting. That's a given. Um, I love it. If you actually like you talk to some of these reps from these software companies, they'll, they'll say things like, and, and your tenants can pay rent online. And it's like, yeah, wow, that's like great news from 10 years ago. Thank you for like <laughs> promoting that as a feature. Um, so we need workflow or process-centric software designed from the ground up for property managers. And I think there's a few companies taking a crack at this. And what I know for a fact is it would be extremely difficult to make it good. Because one of the issues is every single property manager does things differently. Um, And if you talk to any of the people who make the software, this is like their biggest headache is you talk to 10 different property managers about how how it should work when you receive rents, which is one of the most basic things you can do in software. You're going to get 10 different answers. Let me give a specific example. Let's say a tenant prepays six months of rent. So say it's November, right? It's November right now as we're recording this. Tenant walks in the door with a check for six months of prepaid rent. 
how do you account for that in the system? Should it be, you know, all accounted for here in the month of November, and then the owner gets all that paid out? Should it be allocated as like a liability called prepaid rent? How does that affect, you know, the financials for the year? You know, do you count that income for this year or do you split it? Like you immediately get like lost in the weeds within seconds of having this discussion with a property manager and they all have different ideas about how it should work. So trying to make software that pleases everybody is really, really hard. And I think some of these larger VC backed property management companies have made their own software specifically for how they do things. And I'm guessing a lot of it is workflow centric in the way I'm describing where instead of just like click here to receive rent, it's like click here to move in a tenant, right? You see how that's a very different uh, way of thinking about the software. It's like you need to design the software around the day-to-day activities of the people who work at the business, not just a way of keeping accounts. And I think a lot of that stems from, and you see it kind of across prop tech in general, not just property management, but a lot of people starting these companies are not coming from the property management industry or Correct. background. They're just, you know, no offense, but they're like tech bros or tech gals yep. in Silicon Valley that heard that property management needs an update and they're just kind of throwing stuff at a wall and God bless them. They're still getting billions of dollars of funding to build it. <laughs> um, yeah. I kind of want to go through uh, two more kind of topics. One would be kind of the first time we chatted uh, was on this topic. At the time, I was looking at buying a commercial property management business, which we didn't uh, end up buying, but you had bought a couple. And so let's just talk about those. Can you kind of talk about what you bought, why you bought it, how you valued it, kind of the whole deal? And then, yeah. you know, and you've been really vocal and you you post weekly about businesses that you see listed. I just find it fascinating. So let's just talk about it for a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So so we've purchased in the history of RL Property Management, my, my management company, we've purchased two books of business. Uh, the first book of business was actually not that long after we started the company. It was, it was probably a year or two after we had started the firm. And it was small. I think it was about 35 units. Um, it was from another property manager in town who was wanting to kind of divest from third-party management and focus. You know, They're like a real estate private equity company. They wanted to focus really on just managing properties that they owned or that they had an ownership interest in. So it was a perfect match. It was like, great. We love third-party management. We'll buy these contracts off you. So we negotiated and came up with a purchase price where we would buy the management agreements. Um, it's, it's a goodwill transaction. So it's it's an asset sale, not a stock sale. And uh, so we purchased those 35 units, which I think was like 12 or 15 clients uh, who owned those units. And we still manage some of those to this day. Um, the The economics of how much you should pay for those accounts or for those contracts is a function of many factors, including quality of the properties that you're going to be taking under management, client concentration, so how many units uh, relative to how many clients, right? If you if you're buying a book of business and it's 200 units and 180 of them are one client, you know that's that's gonna that's gonna not be as attractive as buying. 200 units that are owned by 50 clients because there's a huge risk that that one client could leave. Um, It's also a function of 
the actual management agreement itself. So what are the fees and what are the other standard terms that are in that management agreement? Because as a buyer, I'm going to be operating under that existing management agreement for maybe up to a year before I can renew that client and get them onto my management agreement. Um, and the uh, what you're willing to pay is also affected, of course, by the terms. So just like any transaction, terms is going to help dictate the price. So, you know, is the seller financing any of it? Is it due all up front or can you pay it over time? Um, and then one big uh, function as it relates to property management contracts, at least, is a clawback provision. So in both of the purchases that we've done, we've included a clawback provision, which simply states, hey, if any of these accounts leave within the first X months, we're not going to pay for it. So if I pay, let's say I come to some sort of terms and I'm paying X dollars per unit to purchase these contracts. Well, if five of those units leave three days after we purchase them, like I'm not going to pay for that because I haven't made any money on it. Uh, and these, you know, the clawback provisions are, of course, all negotiable. You know, whether it's a six month clawback, one year clawback, how much of the value is is being clawed back? Is it 100% of the value that you paid or half or whatever? Uh, so there's a lot of ways to kind of skin that cat, so to speak. Um, so then the second purchase was much bigger. This was last year, 2020. Uh, in early 2020, we purchased, I think it was about 135 units, again, from another property manager, a different one locally here, who was divesting his entire property management business to focus exclusively on brokerage. So this company was primarily helping real estate investors buy and sell homes and investment properties. And just kind of as a secondary function was also managing them. Uh, but they found that the management was distracting and and labor intensive, and they just they were ready to be done with that part of the business. I said, "Great, that's all we do. We'd love to buy that from you." Uh, so we came to agreement on price and purchased that book of business as well, uh, and that's worked out decently well. Um, you experience a pretty high churn when you buy a book of business like this. You're going to lose a certain percentage of the new clients, no matter what you do, just because any change, just people are going to take that opportunity to either sell or shop around for another manager or what have you. So you have to factor that into your price. And, 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 you know, of course, the clawback helps, helps uh, ease that pain. Uh, but it is, it is a factor. How'd you finance these just in your case? Was it uh, owner note or SBA or just cash? Uh, so I think in both cases, we split the payment into two, we did half up front and then half after a year, we may have done like three payments on one of them. And the first one was so small, we just did cash. Uh, the, the one last year was larger. We drew down a line of credit that we have for our property management business, just like a general business line of credit. Um, we didn't have to, but we wanted to reduce our cash outlay. So we drew down some of that just to, just to help. Um, we didn't do any seller financing for, for either of those. And do you have any, do you have them sign a non-compete or anything that they can't go spin up a property management yep. business? We do. So that's another term that's negotiable is not, you got to get that non-compete in place. Otherwise, what's to stop this guy from just starting up three months later and winning back half his clients, right? So, and part of that, you know, there's really two parts of that non-compete is the geographical area. So how far out do you want to restrict them from managing? And then how long, one years, two years, five years, you know? Last question on that. Do 
do you get to talk to any of the clients that are already with them or you, you can kind of get a feel for how those clients will be just by reading kind of, you know, how long they've been with that manager, what their contracts look like? You know, we haven't had the opportunity to talk to the clients. Um, I think there's a, probably a fear that that might spook them a little bit. We do get a chance to review the management agreements in detail and view a list of once you get far and along enough in the process and you've signed an NDA and everything, you'll get a client list and you can see like this client owns this property, this property, this property, and has been with the company for this many years. So you can get a really good sense just from that. You don't even really need to talk to the client just from looking at the management agreement, the properties they own and how long they've been with the firm. Got it. And just uh, if you can share or if you can't, but on both of those transactions, what did it look like a year in? What was the the, the churn? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's it's definitely higher than our sort of organic churn. So I mentioned that our churn is like 15 to 20%. I think the churn on these acquired portfolios was more like 30% to maybe 40% in that first year. Uh, and then it, it, it kind of reverts back to your organic churn rate. That first year is really when, you know, in the beginning, you've got some bunch of people who decide to leave. And then as you try to renew them onto your contract, so as these clients, as their management agreement with the old manager expired, we renew them onto our property management agreement with our fees and our terms. And you have another like smaller wave of people who decide to take that, you know, now's the time to, to sell or look around. So. Got it. All right. Um, this was something that we had chatted about and um, our buddy Russell brought it up, but Airbnb, yep. you had kind of, it, it really was super interesting. And I've thought a lot about it since you kind of brought it up, but you just basically said, uh, you know, Airbnb might have a huge, they might be the gorilla that's going to come into residential property management and really disrupt things. So Will you just kind of set the stage by what you're thinking and, and you know, what could happen? And maybe that thought's evolved. It's been about a year since you put it out. Yeah. So the thinking here is Airbnb, if you, if you look at what they're doing in short-term, I guess, management or, or short-term short stays, um, they really have a huge existing network of customers. So if you go to travel somewhere and you you don't want to stay at a major hotel, you're going to book with Airbnb. And so you likely already have with Airbnb a profile with a credit card and even a history showing um, you stayed with this property, you stayed at this property, and you get a chance to rate that property with a like a five-star rating. And then they also have a chance to rate you. So Airbnb has this already uh, built-in network of properties hosts, which is basically like a landlord, and guests, which is basically like a tenant. And it would be really simple for Airbnb to um, flip a switch and say, hey, we are now offering, in addition to staying somewhere when you travel, you can just book a house for a year or two years. Um, and we're going to provide those you know, unfurnished. So it'd be just like a traditional rental. Um, and I think that... I think that's hugely powerful, right? So if you picture if you picture it from the perspective of like the quote guest or tenant, Airbnb is is a trusted uh, platform. So when you engage with Airbnb to stay somewhere on a short term basis, 
you know, your payment is going through Airbnb. You're not making some cash payment to some sketchy like super who lives at the property. Um, disputes are handled through Airbnb. Insurance handled through Airbnb. The lease, like the quote lease that you sign to stay at a property for uh, a weekend or a week or a month, that's like Airbnb's standard lease, right? So the experience as a guest is phenomenal. Um, and I think if we, if Airbnb were to encourage hosts to start offering apartments and homes for long-term rentals, it's just going to be a game changer because if I have the opportunity as a guest to book my next rental or my next apartment through Airbnb, I'm absolutely going to do that rather than submitting myself to background checks by some random landlord or maybe three or four different ones. You're paying all these application fees. You're being asked to sign these onerous leases that have who knows what terms in them. You know, even everything from the security deposit. Like if you stay somewhere with Airbnb, they're handling the security deposit. You know you're going to get it back or there's going to be like a standardized dispute process for handling that. So I just think that they've aggregated enough of the consumer mindshare and the consumer demand that they could step into the property management space and really kind of dominate. And that would leave property managers and, and housing providers as more of just like facilitators. Like if you picture, like if you've ever run an Airbnb as a host, you know, you're not dealing with payments and leases and security deposits. And you're just like fulfilling. It's like a fulfillment type activity. You're making sure the unit's getting cleaned out or cleaned between guests. You're sort of dealing with any little maintenance items that might come up. But Airbnb is capturing the majority of the value in that transaction because they're the one that has the relationship with the consumer. So does this uh, something that excites you or is this something that frightens you or like, what does this mean for you? Um, excuse me, a little bit of both. Um, it does excite me because I think, I think tenants honestly deserve a better experience. I think they deserve a more Airbnb like experience when they're renting a home or, or an apartment. Like, you know, we both have kids when they get to be the age where they get to go out and rent their first apartment, I would feel a lot better about them going through an Airbnb platform than renting from some random dude named Levi downtown. <laughs> like I just would. Um, and so that's exciting, but it's also scary, right? Cause this is my business. And if they come in and, and they have that relationship with, with the demand side, which is the guests, and that sort of relegates our our side, which is the supply side, if that relegates us to more of just like a fulfillment, low margin type activity, you know, that's not going to be great. But um, my what I've always said about this is, if Airbnb decides to go this route, I'm going to be first in line, I'm going to sign up as like the Airbnb preferred partner, or whatever, like program they have to work with housing providers, I'm going to be first, at, first in line, first through the gate to like, at least participate in some way. And kind of my little side hedge is I also own Airbnb stock. So if they completely come in and destroy, at least I'll, you know, theoretically capture some of the upside. But if they were to come into a market like yours, they might say, look, well, we, we would, you're an attractive buy. We could buy, you know, our first 600 units and, and convert them. And so I think it's just a really interesting take. I think yours, um, you know, 
I don't know if it's good that you're right or, or bad that you're right. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> um, but I've said it often also about commercial real estate. There's no continuity kind of global brand of commercial property managers. The, the largest in the industry are simply large because it's CBRE, JLL, Cushman. They're just global companies. But um, it's 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 yeah. kind of shocking to me that there's not an Airbnb or a Four Seasons like brand for commercial real estate either. I'm I'm sure that's coming, but I just thought it was a great take. All right, I'm gonna go for a couple from our friends on Twitter, and then um, we'll let you get back to your day. What lessons did you take away from Scott Crabtree, and how did you apply them to RL? And what was the conversation like? Uh, when your partner stepped away to manage y'all's new engineering firm, yeah. So Scott Crabtree is uh, he he owns an accounting firm and he's written a couple books. Uh, they're fantastic. I highly recommend them for any business owner. Uh, it, he has uh, there's a book called Simple Numbers, and then he I think he has an update to it called Simple Numbers 2.0. And the book talks about it talks about how to measure your return on labor, essentially. So as a business owner, you can look at, or as an investor, you can look at things on like return on equity. Um, and it's pretty easy to calculate. Like if I buy this, say you own a factory and you have the opportunity to purchase a, a new piece of equipment, it's pretty easy to calculate. If I buy this piece of equipment, I can increase my widget production by X per hour. And you can calculate a, a return on investment for that widget maker. Um, and, and Greg provides a framework for how to do that same analysis for, for labor, for your employees. Um, and the way, the way he looks at this is using something called your, your labor efficiency ratio, LER for short, the way you calculate this is you just take your gross revenue for your whole business and you divide it by your, your wages and salaries. So anything on your P and L that has wages and salaries on it sum that all up and divide it into your overall revenue. And what you want to see is 2.0 or higher. So for every dollar you spend on labor, you're hopefully generating at least $2 in revenue. And it's different for different businesses. And he talks about, you know, the different types of businesses and, and how to look at this in more detail. Um, but for property management, it turns out to be extremely useful. Um, mostly because our largest expense by far, it's not even close, is labor. It's wages and salaries. You know, we don't have any big equipment. We don't have a need for huge office space. We don't have trucks. You know, we're not doing truck stuff. We're not messing around with, you know, we don't even really have to own any real estate. You know, it just so happens we own our office building here, but we don't have to. We didn't for a long time. So you need to understand as a property management company owner, how are we doing in terms of is is the dollar that is the dollars we're spending on labor being used efficiently? And another way to put this is, um, can I afford to hire somebody? You know, for my for my revenue level that I'm at right now, should I be looking to hire somebody or should I be looking to drive efficiencies with my existing labor force? So Scott provides a really awesome explanation and framework for how to how to analyze this in detail. I'm probably not doing it justice by my little summary here, uh, but I wanted to give you a piece of that. Um, and he he, there's one other thing he talks about which I found really insightful, which is 
how do you know whether you should take the profits from your company and reinvest them into the business or alternatively take those profits and reinvest them elsewhere, like maybe in real estate, for example? Um, so Scott's rule of thumb, if I'm remembering correctly, is for it to be worth the the effort and struggle and risk of reinvesting profits in your company, you should look for a 50% ROI. So for every dollar you invest back into your company in sales or marketing or a new product line, you should be generating, you know, if, if you spend a dollar, you should get 50 cents back, you know, that first year or after the first year it, as a way of thinking about what to do with the profits from a small business. We're getting kind of in the weeds here, but he's going to he's going to do a much better job explaining that than I would. And it's a really useful way to think about, honestly, just capital allocation as a small business owner. Love so, it. The second part of that question, what was the conversation like when my business partner stepped away to run the engineering firm? Honestly, it was great because we've been looking to buy a small engineering company for years. Our background was in engineering. We always knew that if we saw an opportunity to purchase a small engineering company, we should probably do that. And so we purchased a company called Criterium Lisquet uh, here in Columbus, and they provide building, they provide engineering services to building owners. So property inspections, home inspections, commercial building inspections. They also do association reserve studies, anything having to do with you need an opinion from an engineer on a structure. That's what they do. And so we, we bought that business. Uh, it was an existing business. We purchased it this year. He went off to run that company as CEO. We're 50-50 owners of that business and this business. I love it, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been fun. Was it two engineers have to fight over who was going to be the CEO of the engineering business or was it pretty obvious? No, it was pretty obvious. Uh, he, he was ready to get out of the property management business. Um, my partner, I, I always refer to him as the engineer's engineer. You know, he's very analytical, extremely smart, um, fairly introverted. Like he would probably never just randomly get on a podcast like we are here. Um, so he's he's a perfect match to run an engineering company. And and he was kind of getting tired of the day to day at, at the management company here. So it was uh, it was, you know, it was easy. OK. All right. One personal one and then uh, we'll bring it home. I think it's fascinating that you also have, uh, I would call it another business, but you restore historic windows. Um, yeah. We share real estate in common, but we do not share uh, renovating historic windows in common. I would have never <laughs> even imagined that that could be a thing. How the hell does somebody get into that? And and tell me just a little bit about it. Uh, I think it's really cool. Yeah. So it all came about because my house that I live in now, which I've lived there about eight years, it was built in 1895. It's a huge old house in a historic part of town that was built in 1895. And it was converted to be a multiple units at some point many, many years ago before I owned it. So that was actually, you know, it's like a house hacking thing. I you know lived on the first floor with my wife and we ran out the other units. Excuse me. So the windows are original and they were in horrible condition. So I looked into replacing them and it turns out that since we're in a historic district, it's not as easy as just going down to Lowe's and, and purchasing some new vinyl windows. The district requires that you either restore or replace with like kind, meaning custom sized wood windows, which are highly expensive. 
So I got interested in, hey, what, it would, what would it actually look like to restore these windows? Kind of coincidentally, my wife uh, took a part-time job at a local company that did wood window restoration. It, she was just looking for some something to do. And um, so she learned a little bit about how to do this. And I got curious and kind of grilled her on like, okay, now what tool do you use to get the paint <laughs> off again? And so I kind of got the basics and then I found, uh, I found a couple of books and some YouTube videos that showed the process and I thought it looked really interesting. So long story short, I figured out how to do it. Uh, with some help from my wife and, and these resources, I figured out how to restore the windows on my house. And I did a few of them. And after I did a few of them, I decided that it was a hell of a lot of work and I didn't really want to do it myself uh, all that much longer. So I decided it would probably be easier to spin up a whole new division at my company to do this work than to finish the windows myself. So <laughs> that's what I did. Uh, and it wasn't just on a whim. I, I had done a little bit of research and, and realized that there was actually several of these historic districts around our area. Um, and there was a big demand for wood window restoration uh, because if you talk to these other companies that provide the service, they were all booked up for months. And that's just a classic, like, high demand, low supply. So I figured, hey, our guys, our maintenance guys, they're slow in the winter and between jobs. Sometimes they get slow anyway. So maybe we can just supplement that with this kind of high margin specialty work. Um, and so that's what that's what we've done. We do a small amount of this work right now, but it's something that we're looking to possibly grow in the future. Cool. You're an entrepreneur. All right. What's the best way for people to uh, get in touch with you and and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah. So best way is probably on Twitter. Uh, so you can follow me at PS Loman. I'm sure there'll be a, a link. Uh, my website, peterloman.com has links to my other stuff. I've got a, an email list. I had a, a podcast called Owner Occupied. I did one season of I'll probably I'm starting to do a little bit of planning for season two. Uh, and uh, yeah, love to connect. I love helping people who are in real estate or property management or, or small business. That, you know, I, I talk about that stuff and, and think about it all day long. So, Thanks, Peter. This was, this was awesome, man. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, this was great. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.